Before we begin our Bible study, let me express to you how good it is to see you and to welcome those of you who are visiting with us today. We're glad to, to have you here. We welcome you here. And I do want to remind uh, those of you who are members of our church that uh, in our evening service uh, tonight, we will be taking the Lord's Supper. So I do encourage you to consider that this afternoon and to come and to uh, participate in that uh, very important remembrance of uh, the death of Jesus Christ. When Jesus was led by Roman soldiers to the place of, of crucifixion, when they arrived at the scene where he would be executed, Jesus, as the, uh, as the soldiers uh, had been mocking him and as they prepared to nail him to a cross, according to Luke 23 and 34, Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Men either had just or were about to take nails and drive them through his wrists and feet. They were about to elevate him, if they hadn't already, for his death. And they were about to publicly shame him even more by tearing his clothes from him and dividing them amongst themselves through a game. And yet Jesus was able to say, Father, forgive them, for they don't know what they're doing. This, if we think about it, should actually surprise us. That a person could have the ability to undergo a complete injustice. And yet, while undergoing that complete injustice, have the ability to pray to the Father for the forgiveness of the ones carrying out that injustice on him. Jesus, Jesus doesn't just give us the shocking claim that God took upon humanity and walked among men. He also presents to us what perfect humanity would look like if conducted in perfection. And part of that then apparently is the ability to do things like not demand rights, not demand privileges, not demand that the letter of the law in regard to one's person be followed, but rather to forego all rights and privileges and even to undergo injustice while praying for the forgiveness of those who are carrying out that injustice. Jesus wasn't a man of threats. He wasn't a man of privileges and powers. He was a man of lowliness and humility, capable of praying for the forgiveness of those who did injustice to him, of teaching his disciples 
that when they're offended to seek reconciliation with each other, teaching them to be humble. Jesus is an example, is the example of what perfect humility should look like. And just to dwell on Jesus again for a minute, let me ask you this. What would, what would someone do with total power? Probably all of us at some point when we were kids played this imaginary game that we want to do. And we, we do this sometimes as teenagers. We would ask this question. What would you do if you were in charge? How would things be different if you were in charge? If, if you were made president for a day? If you were God for a day, what would you do? And this is almost always a question about having power and what would you do with that power. And from that point of view, we think about, well, what would we change about everybody else to create the world as we think it ought to be shaped? But what would someone do? with total power. That, again, is part of what ought to shock us about the life of Jesus and about what played out as Jesus was being crucified and what he prayed on behalf of the soldiers who crucified him. Because who was Jesus? What rights and privileges did he have Jesus was God come to earth. And as such, there were rights and privileges that came with that. The right to be ruler of the world. The right to be recognized as God. And what would it have looked like if Jesus had exercised the power that came with who he is? We dwelled on that a little bit last week. He could have called, as the song goes, 10,000 angels. Jesus could have exerted the full brunt and force of his power. But instead, what do we see Jesus doing? He uses his power to heal the sick. He uses his, his power and his person and his authority to teach his disciples about how they ought to interact with each other how they can be at peace with each other, how they can be unified around the truth and how they should live in unity around the truth. He teaches them to be forgiving, to seek reconciliation, to live humbly. It's not the way that we would think of a powerful person living. He doesn't use power to ascend to greater heights of power so that he can then control it by himself. Jesus uses power to help others, to demonstrate the reality about God's character and nature. That's what Jesus does. And then... The rest of the New Testament teaches us to follow his example. And one of the things that the letter of Philemon does, and it's why I think it's so powerful, but as I said last week, so hard to grapple with, is that it actually gives us a real-life situation 
where people who are living out their lives in a world filled with privilege and rank and position and power and class and nationality, they're actually working out, living out in real life what it means to be a believer while surrounded by all of that other, those other components, excuse me, that come with being a human. How does Christianity fit in that world and what does it look like played out on the ground? And what we find is that Paul was trying to model Christ-like behavior for Philemon. He was trying to encourage Philemon to extend Christ-like virtue and behavior towards someone that law and rank and privilege demanded he treat in an entirely different way. And Paul writes to Philemon to change his view of Onesimus in light of the fact that Onesimus' status in Christ has become something new because of his encounter with Paul. So let's think about this morning, and I want to come back and look at some specifics, and I'm going to spend time looking at the specifics with you. But let's take up in verse 12 of Philemon and read through the end of verse 17. Paul writes here about Onesimus, whom I have sent again, Thou therefore receive him, that is, mine own bowels, whom I would have retained with me, that in your stead he might have ministered unto me in the, in the bonds of the gospel. But, with, but without your mind would I do nothing, that your benefit should not be as it were of necessity, but willingly. For perhaps he therefore departed for a season, that you should receive him forever, not now as a servant, but above a servant, a brother beloved, especially to me, but how much more unto thee, both in the flesh and in the Lord. If thou count me therefore a partner, receive him as myself. There is lowliness, there is lowliness that saturates Paul's letter to Philemon. It is personal, it is dear, but it is also founded upon the example and teaching of Jesus and the example and teaching of Jesus is, is getting uh, illustrated for us or applied to a situation that has arisen that demands very careful negotiation and consideration. Let's spend some time just for a minute with what we know. We know, based on the language of what we just read, specifically from verse 16, that Onesimus apparently is a slave owned by Philemon. The word that's translated servant in verse 16 comes from the word for a slave. Onesimus's status in life is one of a slave. His owner, 
apparently is Philemon. That is why Paul can say that uh, perhaps he can entertain to Philemon that perhaps Onesimus has gone away for a while so that Philemon can then receive him back no longer as a slave but as something more than a slave. So this suggests to us then that Philemon was the owner of Onesimus, that in rank in society they were on the opposite ends, that Philemon actually personally owns Onesimus, but what we also get here is that Paul is trying to convey to Philemon that something has happened to Onesimus in his absence from Philemon that calls upon Philemon to look at him in a way that transcends rank, privilege, and law and that also then should encourage Philemon to treat him in a way that is not motivated by power, privilege, rank, or law, but that is motivated by the shared status that he and Onesimus have in Christ. All right, so that's part of the above, above the, uh, uh, from the panoramic view that we have. Number two, where we began in verse 12 is the second of three descriptions that Paul gives about Onesimus. And we looked at those last week. Those three descriptions occur in verse 10, verse 12, and verse 13. And they are all introduced by the relative pronoun whom. Right now in verse 12, where we began... Paul is expanding upon the person of Onesimus. And he is describing him in this way. Whom I've sent again, that you therefore receive him, that is, my own bowels. Paul says now that he is returning Onesimus to Philemon. It is Paul who has taken the active role of sending Onesimus back to Philemon. So rather than harboring him as a slave and protecting him from Philemon in this way, instead, what Paul has decided to do against his own needs, in fact, as he'll explain in a minute, what he has decided to do is to send Philemon, I mean Onesimus, back. He sends him back, describing him as his own bowels. And what this is trying, what Paul is trying to convey is the depth of the personal love, compassion, and concern that he holds for Onesimus. Paul is concerned with the way Philemon will treat Onesimus. He is anxious about Onesimus. But specifically, what he wants to get across to Philemon is that he does not view Onesimus as a slave. 
He does not view Onesimus merely in terms of his utility, but rather he views Onesimus in terms of Christ. And in terms of Christ, Paul loves him. He has great compassion for him. Paul loves Onesimus so deeply that you cannot distinguish between Paul and Onesimus himself. That is why Paul can say to Philemon, as we just read at the end, in verse 17, that if you are holding me as someone who is a sharer in the gospel, then you receive or welcome Onesimus as though you're welcoming me. The love, the bond that exists between Paul and Onesimus is now one where the two are inseparable. You cannot look at them. You cannot, Philemon can no longer look at Onesimus and merely see someone in terms of possession or property. He can't look at him and define him anymore in terms of his rank in society. Instead, Paul is enjoining that if you look at Onesimus and you think about Onesimus, you think of him in terms of the same way that you would think of me. And how would Philemon think of Paul? He would think of Paul, or at least Paul is entertaining the possibility, that you would look at me as a koinon. You would look at me as someone who shares fellowship with you in the gospel of Jesus Christ. We're believers. We're in the same, we would say, social circle. Or we're in the same network. And the network that you and I are a joint part of is the network of people within Roman society who are believers that Jesus is the Christ. We believe that Jesus is God come in the flesh and that he gave his life as the ransom for our sins. We believe that Jesus was raised from the dead on the third day. This is a, a minority view in society, but we're people who, who know each other who have fellowship with each other around this shared view. And so he says, Paul says to Philemon, that if you consider me, if you're holding me as someone who is a sharer of this point of view, if you view me as a believer too, then you receive Onesimus as though you were receiving me. You receive him on the same grounds that you would receive me. You would receive him on the same basis that you would receive me. Not merely because I love him and not merely because he is my bowels, but because something transformative has happened in Onesimus too, where because he has been around me, I have begotten him in my bonds. And he is now my child. He is a believer in Jesus Christ just as we are believers in Jesus Christ. 
And in light of the fact that you would more than likely receive me on those terms, you receive Onesimus as though you would receive me. The bond between Paul and Onesimus is so close. Paul considers him so much a part of himself that he can refer to him then as his bowels. And he can say to Philemon, you receive him like you would receive me. You view us the same. Now notice what's implied in that for just a minute. Philemon wouldn't receive Paul as though Paul were his slave. Philemon wouldn't receive Paul in, in, in the terms established by society itself or by law. In fact, from one perspective, and we've already talked about how this underpins the letter, if Paul were to come to Philemon, it's actually Paul who would be the one who has the most power. It's Paul who has the higher rank. It's Paul who has the higher privilege because it's Paul who is the apostle, not Philemon. Paul isn't even writing in those terms. He's just talking about the benefits that you would extend, the love that you would show, the compassion that you would show. You treat Onesimus, your slave, as though he were me. So, in Paul's description of Onesimus, there is the transformation of Onesimus's person and therefore the way that he should be viewed in light of the fact that he is a believer. Philemon should look at, at Onesimus as a believer. And so Paul is sending Onesimus back to Philemon his rightful owner, but he's sending him back, making it clear that Onesimus, something about Onesimus has changed. Paul has begotten him in his bonds. It is the one he's sending back is the one who is his bowels, the one who is the full recipient of his mercy. And then thirdly, in verse 13, thirdly in these descriptions of Onesimus, Paul describes him in this way. Whom I would have retained with me, that in your stead he might have ministered unto me in the bonds of the gospel. There was something that Paul had considered. Apparently Paul had, had actually weighed what to do with Onesimus. And so part of what verse 13 gives us a window into is a, is a world where the relationship between, the earthly relationship between Philemon and Onesimus creates a complicated position for Paul. Because now Paul is, is pressed in the, in the straits between what law and society demands, what Paul's own personal needs are, and, and these two things are not in congruence. So for example, Roman law itself divided the world 
into two categories of people as it related to persons. Right? So we know, and the New Testament is a reflection of this, that within the Roman world there are multitudinous, what we would call ethnicities. But Roman law divided people into two groups. You were free or you were slave. That's it. Now, as a slave, Onesimus has gone away from Philemon. There's a lot of debate about why. We don't exactly know why he's left, but we know he's left, and apparently he's left for an extended period of time. Some calculate that if Onesimus had traveled in any of the normal ways that you could travel, and if Paul were in prison in Rome, which he appears to be, that it might have taken as much as as three months for Onesimus to make it from Colossae to Rome. Now you and I could do that in probably about an hour flight, but we weren't, weren't having to travel on roads by foot and then to travel and to fight the sea, the Mediterranean Sea, which complicated communication and complicated travel. So, for some reason, and apparently this is part of the tension between Philemon and Onesimus, for some reason, Onesimus has gone away from Philemon. And it does seem, based on the way that Paul writes about this, that Onesimus may have considered running away. And that in the midst of running away, or being away from his owner, something, we don't know what exactly, has brought him into contact with Paul. Maybe Philemon had sent aid for Paul while Paul was in prison. Or maybe he had been sent with a letter. And so his whole purpose in travel was to be where Paul is, was to find Paul and to give something that Philemon or the Colossian church had sent to him. We don't know. But there seems to be some consideration in this letter that Onesimus would never return to Philemon. But while Onesimus was with Paul, he became a believer. Or at least whatever whatever falling away we might call it, or whatever backsliding we might term it, Onesimus was considering... Paul had been able to teach him and instruct him in the truth and that the love and concern for, between Paul and Onesimus grew and Onesimus's love for Paul grew and so there was maturity in Christ that happened. One of those two things must have occurred. But now Paul is suggesting I personally have thought about just keeping Onesimus with me. This would have been contrary to Roman law. Onesimus could be considered a runaway slave because he's been gone for so long. And Paul is now the one who knows where that runaway slave is. 
And so law demands that he send Onesimus back, that he ensure that Philemon's property be returned to him. Now, what's interesting about this, then, is verse 13 suggests that Paul actually thought about, which is what uh, uh, the word that's translated as, whom I would have retained. It comes from the word to give counsel, to give purpose, to make a plan. It suggests that Paul's original plan was just to keep Onesimus with him. Never to send him back. Never to expose him to Philemon again. And again, what seems to underpin the letter, it's the purpose of the letter, is this umbrella, this dark, gloomy um, cloud, if you will, that, that the people involved know that if Onesimus ever returns to Philemon, that there is the possibility that Philemon, as owner of Onesimus, can exercise the fullness of his rights of ownership and he can abuse Onesimus to his heart's content. No one can do anything about it. There's that possibility. That dark cloud hangs over this whole thing. And Paul says about Onesimus, I was, I was thinking about just suppressing him to myself. Just, he's, he's mine. Paul actually considered, and this is, this is something very interesting in light of, of what he's trying to get Philemon to do. Paul does seem to suggest, Philemon, I considered pulling rank over you. And I consider just keeping Onesimus for myself. That would have been breaking the law, by the way. Don't you find it interesting that Paul, as a prisoner, would consider breaking the law but decides against it? That is, even as a prisoner, he said, I, I'm, I'm going to uphold the law. That's one of the things Paul is doing, is upholding the law. But none of this is about the law. Paul doesn't want what is what is about to unfold to be governed by the dictates of Roman law. He doesn't want it to be governed by the rights and privileges that Philemon can say he has. But he also, as we've dwelt upon it, perhaps ad nauseum to you, is that Paul also doesn't want this situation to be governed by the rank and privilege that he has as an apostle over Philemon. Instead, he wants the virtues of Christ to govern this whole situation. Think about the risk for a minute that Paul is admitting that he's taking. I considered holding him to myself. But I didn't do that. I'm sending him back to you. I'm sending him back. There's a risk involved because there's a way that Philemon can treat this man. And there's nothing that anyone can do about it. Not one person can do anything about it. And so Paul's sending him back. And he says, I thought about keeping him to myself. And I thought about keeping him to myself because, well, he, 
he's useful for me. And, and he describes the, the benefit that, that Onesimus could ha- did have for him. In verse 13, he says there that in your stead, that is, uh, on your behalf, on your behalf, he might have ministered unto me in the bonds of the gospel. See, Onesimus had come and, and he had been around Paul and apparently he had been converted by Paul and while, even while Paul was in prison, and this shows you where things perhaps rank in society or it shows you the, uh, the humility of Onesimus, the personal humility of Onesimus, that even while Paul was a prisoner... Onesimus aided Paul. He helped him. The word that's, that's translated here as ministered does mean to, to serve as, well, we get, our, we get our English noun deacon from this term, but it's a verb that means to, uh, to, fulfill, one's, uh, uh, to fulfill a service uh, on behalf of someone else. And so Paul is saying, look, one thing I did consider is that just in your place, you're not here and instead of, instead of asking you for financial aid or physical assistance, Onesimus is here and he's been helping me and he's been serving me and so I thought about uh, keeping him to myself so that in, in your place, in your place, he may be serving me in the bonds of the gospel. So there's some benefit I could derive from Onesimus' presence. Notice again, this forces us to think about this. Onesimus provided a service that was useful and that Paul found needful for himself in his own circumstances. And yet, he's willing to deprive himself of this very useful person, this very helpful person, in order to achieve some greater spiritual benefit between Onesimus and Philemon. Why didn't Paul keep Onesimus with him? He explains in verse 14, But without your mind, that is without your input, without your opinion, would I do nothing that your benefit should not be as it were of necessity, but willingly. What Paul is saying here is that he was was not going to simply take Onesimus for himself. Not at least without the input of Philemon. Paul Paul was willing to put Onesimus and Philemon in an awkward human situation that would call for them both to exercise the virtues of Christ toward one another. He was willing to put them in that situation rather than simply pulling rank on Philemon, taking Onesimus for himself, and having Onesimus aid him and serve him in place of Philemon. Instead of imposing a course of action upon Philemon, Paul wants his full consent. He wants his input. And so he says, 
without your input, without your opinion. I did not want to do anything lest, lest, he says, what you do, that is that good thing, might be according to force or imposition, necessity. I don't want it to be out of force or necessity, but rather I want it to be willingly. Now, I want, to, I want you to think about something with me for just a minute because if I've expressed anything with any clarity so far, at least maybe what I've expressed to you is that there are, there's an awkward human situation that has developed. One fully within the, the legal and uh, class and rank parameters of Roman society. And what, what Paul is, is trying to do here is to navigate or to negotiate those waters, those choppy waters, by modeling and by encouraging Christ-like behavior himself. So, let's think about what it means to live in human society for a minute. What kinds of things do we encounter? We do encounter, of course, what we might term normal encounters with other people, polite encounters with other people. So when we come to a place like this, for example, we expect one another to act with some degree of decorum and respect and honor for one another. We, we don't expect uh, someone to bring a gun. We don't expect someone to be rude and just holler out. We don't expect someone to misbehave. And we certainly don't expect someone to start yelling, screaming, expressing anger, things of, the, of that nature. That's just not how people normally act in a public setting. Yet... Despite that, we also do know, though, that even as a congregation of people who share faith in Jesus Christ, that the New Testament allows for the reality of human sinful nature to affect relationships between believers. And so, as we see, for example, illustrated in Paul's letter to the Philippians, or we see illustrated in the letter of 3 John, we can, we can find that there, are, that there are people who even within church begin to, to see themselves in an elevated way. And so they think for one reason or another that everyone else owes them a degree of respect, that people ought to view them as having rank. And what does that do? What that does is it fosters disunity. It fosters people arguing and debating amongst themselves. And it becomes an open door for other vices and other uh, aspects of human behavior that are not so uh, enjoyable to make their way into a congregation of people. 
And so we, can, we, we find Jesus himself, for example, in Matthew 18, allowing for between believers that there are scandals or offenses that could arise. How do, how do, we, how do we negotiate this? How do we, how do we function as believers of Jesus Christ in a way that's different and stands out from the rest of the world. And this brings me to something I want to dwell on again further, just elaborate further upon for just a second. If I were to ask you, well, what does it mean to live life as a believer in the world? What does it mean to do the works that Christianity calls for? We would all be very comfortable if by working your, living your life as a believer, what that meant was. You know, one, you vote a certain way. Two, that you participate in humanitarian endeavors. So you participate in soup kitchens. You participate in giving clothes to the poor. You participate in overseas missions where you, there's humanitarian efforts with medicine and with clothing and things of that nature. And all of those are wonderful. Don't, don't, please don't put words in my mouth to say I'm critiquing those things. All of those things may be wonderful. But I'm going to suggest to you that they are a limited way of thinking about what it means to live out as Christians in the world and they are the easier things that we can do and that's part of the reason we're attracted to them you say that's not necessarily easy well we find doing those things a whole lot easier than say these be gentle with each other interpret one another's words not in the harshest most critical way possible, but in the kindest way possible. Forgiving one another. Forbearing one another. Loving one another, even perhaps at times when that love is not reciprocated. Not lying to each other. Not being angry with each other. Being willing, if someone has offended you, that instead of being angry and saying, I'm hurt and harboring resentment, which is destructive to a spiritual life, that instead you take it upon yourself as Jesus teaches, and there's a whole lot of humility and trust that has to go into this, to go and have that conversation with the person who offended you yourself. Now we don't do those things. We find those things very hard to do. And it's a lot easier to think that, well, if I'm maturing in Jesus, this makes me want to go give to the, the, local, uh, the local humanitarian aid uh, drop-off place. It makes me want to go do that more. Well, it may, but it also should, should make us a gentler, patient, forgiving, loving person who seeks reconciliation not just with one another but among one another 
so that we can function and live in unity in Christ together and we can exhibit the characteristics of Christ together as we're supposed to. And we all are probably way too familiar with the fact that that ideal doesn't really characterize the way we think about being a church. We think about the function of a church in the world as doing physical things. And part of, I guess, what I'm suggesting here is that this seeking of reconciliation that Paul is enjoining Philemon to is the physical demonstration of humility and the virtues of Christ looking at someone from the point of view of shared faith in Christ rather than looking at it in terms of just, well, I've got a legal right to this. And notice how once we start thinking in in terms of our rights, how that seems to lead us to a very dark place. I've got a right for you to do this to me. It's my right to treat you this way. You treated me this way first. It's my right to treat you this way back if I get a chance. And here we come back to, again, Jesus teaching in the Sermon on the Mount. Do unto others as you would have them do unto you. And again, the context of that is they're not treating you this way. Rather than treating them as in a way that's retaliatory, in a way that insists upon your personal rights and privileges, instead you treat them as God does. And I'll end by bringing this full circle. God on earth, how did he live? What characterized his life? Grace, truth, forgiveness. Paul even says in describing him in Philippians chapter 2 that he divested himself of all the rights and privileges that came with being God and he humbled himself. Notice he specifically uses a term that means Jesus had certain built-in rights and privileges. And instead of coming to earth and insisting upon those, he did something else entirely. And what's Paul doing as he writes to Philemon? He's saying, I've got rights and privileges that I could pull here. In fact, I considered them. And I, in part, considered pulling those rights and privileges because I know you have rights and privileges too. But I'm suggesting to you, Philemon, that something has changed about the way we both should see Onesimus and that it's that new relationship that should govern how we treat him and how we see him and how we see his value. We shouldn't do it in terms of what law or what earthly rank gives us. And so what we're seeing here is the building of a case that a relationship in Christ transcends all other relations. And that we should see each other in those terms and our treatment of one another is to be on that basis and not on any other. I'll leave with this thought. I fully understand that what we're talking about 
is hard to do. And I fully understand from the word of God that that is what ought to make our willingness to act in this way different from the way people, quote unquote, normally would act. And it's why our church ought to be a harbor and a refuge from the way people treat each other in the rest of the world. We're not just a collection of people gathered around this, the idea of Jesus, but we're a people who have gathered together on the reality of Jesus' person and who live out in the real world the virtues and characteristics of Jesus. And they become the way we actually treat each other and think of each other and that govern the way we treat and think of each other. And that when we do so, we stand as lights in the darkness. And I hope that our congregation continues to do that as we grow in knowledge of Jesus Christ together. Thank you very much for being here this morning. I will ask you now to join me in standing. I again want to say how thankful we are for all of you who are here and for those who are visiting with us this morning. I do encourage those of our church to return tonight to partake of the Lord's Supper at 7 p.m. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for this time that we've had to spend together around your word and to be challenged by it. We thank you that your word provides for us information that transcends just an academic investigation, but rather that we get to see that Living as believers in the world is something real. And it's something that can help us to understand the, the conflicts that are natural to our human lives, but how knowing Christ can help us to see each other as brothers and sisters and sharers in the faith. And Father, we pray that as we grow in Christ, that our faith would grow, meaning then that our obedience to you and our willingness to be obedient toward you would be lived out within our congregation and that we might all benefit from the virtues of Christ growing amongst ourselves. Father, we pray that our love for you and our love for one another would grow as we know Christ. And help us to be a church that, that does have unity in the faith. And not just about the set of doctrines that we believe or adhere to, but also the manner of life that your word teaches us to live as we await the return of Christ. Father, we do pray for your protection as we go to our homes now. And we pray your watch and care throughout the week. Help us to be bold witnesses of the truth, both in word and in deed. And it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.